Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the broadcast, our regular podcast to discuss pensions and savings issues. I'm your host, David Brooks. I'm head of policy here at uh, Broadstone. And this time I'm joined by my colleague, another David, David Pye. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Well, does it keep it simple? Who's client consulting director at Broadstone and uh, Donna Walsh, who's head of Master Trust at Standard Life. Hi, guys. How are you? Hello. I'm Dave. Yep, very good. Thank you. You already popped in, David. That was a bit naughty of you in my intro, but there we go. So there's a lot of focus on DC World um, at the moment. Um, we've had consultations looking at illiquid assets. There's a private members bill going through about auto-enrolment. Um, so much going on. But today we're going to focus um, on VFM because that's what we've all just been thinking about. Our time of recording, we submitted our responses uh, yesterday. And also the growth of um, and the use of master trusts. So that's why why Donna's here to talk to us about that. So I think for a bit of context for us, Donna, I think it'd be good to get a sense of how has the Master Trust landscape changed over the last 10 years? Yes, thanks, David. And there has been significant change, hasn't there? So yeah, we have seen a lot of change in the in the Master Trust market uh, since the introduction of auto-enrolment particularly. And as a result, we have seen uh, new providers enter the market because there has been a significant increase in demand for Master Trusts. However, we've also seen significant consolidation in the market as a result of the increase in regulation and probably most noticeably uh, the authorisation regime um, where we saw in 2019 around 45 master trusts exit the market due to the increased uh, regulation surrounding master trusts. So today there are only 37 master trusts left in the market. Yeah, and I think I think we can see that number reducing further, can't we, with con consolidation? Um, you know, number of conversations we're having with master trust providers, and the, and they're all talking about buying other master trusts and, and bringing on more assets. Uh, and I think a large number of that 45 that came out of the market as well uh, as, as authorization hit were part of that sort of rush for land grab, weren't they? Under the the auto enrolment and a lot of small schemes, um, you know didn't manage to hit the, the quantum that they needed to uh, and weren't financially viable longer term. So we've had that big bubble really of increase and then uh, uh, consolidation of the market, which yeah, will probably continue, I'd imagine. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. We definitely expect to see fewer master trusts going forward uh, in, the, in this space. Yeah, definitely. So what's the current trend? Do we think employers are looking to move to master trusts? Is that the thing? Yeah, we're still seeing uh, the, the trend mostly around own trust or single employer schemes continuing to move to master trust. And it's primarily down to the cost and resource required to run the, mass, uh, run the trust based scheme. Um, and with the increase in regulation continuing, so we've got the climate related investment regulations with TCFD and the value for member assessments for schemes with less than 100 million in assets, both interests over the last couple of years. It can make sense for employers to join a master trust to benefit from the governance uh, of one set of trustees looking after multiple employers, members, uh, and potentially also reduce charges for members due to the economies of scales that master trusts can give. So, yes, absolutely still seeing that trend towards master trust. Yeah, and, and, it, and it is, you know, as Donna says, largely those single employer trusts have been put under more and more pressure. Um, to you know, comply, do a good job, prove they're doing a good job, uh, and I think you know the value for members assessments for those schemes under 100 million has has been 
the final sort of push uh, and you know dwp have made it quite clear that they you know they don't like small schemes you know whether you agree with that or not they, they're certainly making that case them and the, and the, the pensions regulator as well so anything under that 100 million is always going to be under a lot of pressure um and we've seen we've seen a number of employers who, to be frank, have been doing sorry employers and trustees who've been doing a great job with their schemes. Still, just sort of say, actually, you know, enough's enough. We can't do this. We're not full time uh, in terms of looking after the scheme. You know, even if they've got independent trustees on there as well, uh, and wanting to move some of that responsibility uh, across. And, and and the natural home for that is is master trusts because of the ease of. Uh, transition of assets you know if you use anything else and you know technically you can but if you use anything else then you're looking for member consent and those sort of things which can be very difficult to get particularly we've got you know large numbers of of deferred etc um so yeah it's a, it's a definite area of in, in increasing focus and i think also because of the publicity around master trusts i think even sort of two three years ago coming across a couple of employers that were saying well we need to use a master trust, don't we? Um, you know, that's that that's you know where pensions are going. Um, not necessarily actually understanding the full differences in in, in what they were getting into. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the publicity around that certainly doesn't hurt. Hurt, I don't think. You're touching on the differences there, David. What 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 do you mean? What sort of what differences are you alluding to? Yeah, so I mean, it's it, it's it's the structure and how the contract is set up. Obviously, um, I'll, I'll let you know Donna go into sort of technical detail on that. But when we're talking to um, employers, it is about how much responsibility they want going forward. So, um, you know, with a master trust, you can move more of that responsibility uh, as a sponsoring employer for a scheme uh, and know that it's being well looked after. Uh, and know that you've got that independent oversight from the trustees. Ultimately, the trustees have a responsibility to run run the monies uh, in in the right way. Saying that, that does tend to mean that master trusts are slightly more restrictive in terms of their, you know, um, fund choice, for example, uh, and those sort of things. So sometimes an employer who may want more choice and more involvement around that might still look at the the, the contract based. Um, but yeah, you 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 do get a real mixture. Yeah, yeah I think that's yeah I think that's really interesting because from a member and employer experience perspective our proposition across contract and master trust is broadly similar but you're right around the kind of legal differences mm. the contract arrangement they don't have any contract between the employer and the provider but obviously in the master trust you sign the participation agreement uh, and you have your employer obligations uh, there within the master trust um so you're you're absolutely right there there's also nuances around um, transfer. So when if somebody wants to move their trust, they can do it in a, a non-consent bulk transfer under a trust arrangement. But obviously under a contract arrangement, they have to get member consent to do that. So that's one of the big differences um, around contract and trust as well. But interestingly, to your point around um, trustees and their obligations and, and fiduciary duty running the scheme, and we think it's really important to give employers within the within the master trust access to the trustees so that they can still share uh, ideas, they can still collaborate, they can co-create solutions. So it's a really important part for us that we run our uh, master trust employer events to make sure that we do get employers access to the trustees to still have a voice in how the scheme is run. So how those employer events? How do they how do they work? Do you get do you get like a like an AGM sort of room full of employers all shouting things at you, things they want to do. 
Yeah, yes, in the new world, it's hybrid. So we have a face-to-face and virtual, and we get the trustees to come along, and we get the strategists of the scheme to come along, and then the clients can either join in the room or they can join virtually. And then we actually ask the clients what they want to hear from. So they help us shape the content of those Master Trust events. Um, most recently, we sent out, as part of the Save the Date, 11 topics for them to pick from or choose something else. And we pick the top three or four to then shape the agenda. Um, but they have uh, ample opportunity to uh, challenge the trustees and vice mm. versa in those environments. I was trying to think what the top three or four things they'd have gone for. Oh, I don't know what they'd have been. Was ESG on there? No. ESG. So I can share the top one. Oh, was, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. can share, yeah. So the top one was hearing from the Master Trust trustees and the strategists on the overall Master Trust strategy. Uh, the second one was uh, retirement solutions, so looking at new innovative solutions in the retirement space. And the third one was investment performance and what's coming next from an investment perspective. Yeah, interesting. See, that's yeah. the thing. As a pensions nerd, I'd have, you just think, oh, the employers will want, oh, let's look communications, all the kind of almost the softy stuff, not the hard-nosed How's the investments doing and what's the overall strategy? I suppose they're employers. I don't know. I, don't just... I think, well, it depends on the, the last event that we ran had a big focus on member engagement. Right. So I suppose they've been at that one and now it's like, what, what do you want to hear from next? So, um, and as, as you can imagine, every client has different views as well on what they want to hear. So we pick the top, but then we have panel discussions with the trustees. So it's an open forum. They can ask what they want um, mm. in the session as well. Yeah. I, th- I think it's worth differentiating on some of the master trusts as well, because, you know, um, I mean, master trusts have been around for an awfully long time, but <clears throat> really only coming uh, to the to the fore during that auto enrolment land grab. And, and there was a number of master trusts, you know, Nest being the prime one, obviously, they were set up to, to be a service provider, really, and, and to do the job that they needed to for, for small employers. Um, but a number of the, you know, higher quality, for one of a better expression, Master Trust like Standard Life, of course, um, will allow that 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 access to the trustees. You know, um, I was just looking actually the, uh, the nest figure here I've got is six um, six hundred and fifty thousand employers. So you know, getting them to an AGM would be, be very interesting. But of course, you know, trusts like the master, the Standard Life Master Trust, you know, don't have huge numbers of employers like that. So you can have that that interaction a lot more and and, and a um, yeah a, a better sort of two way. Uh, discussion going on yeah that's interesting i never realized those things happened but that's maybe that's just evidence of my complete ignorance of the world of master trust which is why i'm just asking the questions and not answering them um so so, so the next thing i was interested in was around the transition uh the challenges of moving to a master trust don i think that's probably that's something you can help to dispel some myths or 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 um yeah yeah, absolutely. It can be a, a daunting prospect for um, employers to move to a master trust. And we've we've created a five-point plan to help. And obviously, advisors like yourselves um, and providers will help uh, employers on this transition. So very briefly, five-point plan. Number one, fully scope out your transition. So you need to, as examples, is it for all members in the scheme, actives and deferreds? What do you do with members who are already crystallising benefits and drawdown? Can the new master trust accept those members? So really fully scope out the transition. Number two, agree a plan. So many providers will offer project management support to help with this and consider any member consultations, 
um, legal approvals required that will, will ultimately take some time to get the legals all approved, any asset transition. Number three, work through all those logistics. So we mentioned earlier there, David, around um, the difference between contract and master trust. So you need to get your participation uh, deed stroke agreement uh, agreed and signed. Uh, there may be a transfer agreement, there may be a pre-funding agreement if that's been agreed with the provider. And then you'll need to look at your admin and data feeds as well to see if there's any changes required. Number four, and really, really importantly, communicate, communicate, communicate. Really, really important to communicate to members, keep them informed all the way through uh, and let, help them understand what's happening next. And then lastly, number five, is think about your ongoing governance. So even though you've got these master trust trustees looking after your members, many um, clients still opt to have a governance committee in place and looking at the objectives of their scheme uh, with their relationship manager as an example. So that's our, in a nutshell, very quickly, our five point plan to help with any transition to master trust. Yeah, and, and quite rightly there, Donna, you've, you've highlighted the communications aspect, um, you know, particularly as a large proportion of these schemes will be single employer trust. They've had that paternal approach before, you know, usually, usually some of the employees will have, you know, been, been acting as member nominated trustees and all of these sort of things, you know, it will be a, a long established uh, scheme and usually a long established employer with, you know, good retention rates and that sort of thing. So naturally, yeah, that communication, because it can be seen as up, upheaval um, and and a big change, you know, from moving from something that's seen to be in-house and managed by the company yeah. um, to, uh, you know, an external, you know, insurance provider effectively is what the um, uh, the employees will see. Uh, or the members will see, um, but but also you know that um, that whole project management piece. You know we've done a number of these transitions, and and generally you know you get the occasional hiccup, um, but generally they work pretty well, and there is lots of support around uh, doing that and moving these schemes. They tend to be of you know reasonable size and in, in terms of their assets, um, so you know providers are very keen to make sure that that goes as as smoothly as possible, uh, and is um, yeah um, yeah go, goes goes through well. It's interesting about the paternalistic angle there because where you've got clients who have been in a single employer trust before and the members have known the trustees well, it's really important for them to understand that they will continue to be looked after by a set of independent trustees. So we're looking at just now putting in uh, can you meet the trustee um, videos or webinars or sessions for these members to help them get that reassurance that they'll continue to be looked after just as well as they were before by these independent trustees. Yeah, and making sure that that ongoing governance is still in place so the employer still has some input and oversight on their particular section, because obviously provider and trustees will be responsible for the whole scheme. Um, you know, the employer is much more focused on their particular part of that uh, and, you know, their, their members and employees, so yeah. Absolutely. Okay, um, I think we should move on just to talk about uh, value for members. Or even value for money, depending on who you, who you listen to. It's value for members now, isn't it? Can just members you just is the latest. It's members think, yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. We're going with that anyway. Goodness me. Anyway, value for members. So, F, obviously, very important for the savers' perspective. It's been a hot topic for a few years, especially with two regulators looking off one looking after contract-based schemes, one looking after the trust-based schemes, and perhaps different opinions of what value for members actually means. So, we've now had the uh, or the initial consultation on what kind of trying to come up with one way of measuring all this. Um, but Donna, from your perspective, how has the VFM impacted the landscape so far? 
Yeah, so VFM has seen Standard Life and other providers benchmark against each other on things like investment performance, engagement, communications, costs and charges, service. Um, and that is driving up value across, uh, across members. And then you've got your independent govern governance committees and your master's boards that will hone in on areas that need improvement as part of their VFM assessments. So already this should be improving value for members across the board. And we've also had in 2021, we've got our value for member assessments for schemes of less than 100 million. Um, and the TPR just recently announced its uh, initiative to check that the trustees of these schemes are indeed complying and that members are benefiting from this. So I think this could actually drive more um, or accelerate the move from single employer schemes or own trust schemes to master trust. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, our, our experience on value for members has, has been an interesting one. It's been a, a real journey. So what well, we started effectively January last year, didn't we? Um, January um, 2022 in terms of needing to do this. Um, despite lots of conversations in the in the industry and Dave you was referring to that you know as a pensions person you know what do we think are going to be the big things you know we, we thought everyone was aware of value for members been talking about it for a long time um but I have to say you know employer sorry trustees in particular um, but also providers you know weren't too sure how it was going to go um when it when it first started um and what uh, level of detail was required uh, and it's been interesting going through some of those schemes because you know, a lot of these uh, schemes can be smaller schemes that, that are sat alongside um, defined benefit schemes. Defined benefit schemes ultimately take that that focus. They're sitting on the um, the accounts of the business, liabilities and all those sort of things. And these poor little, little you know, uh, DC schemes can, can get left behind a little bit. Um, and it's been, an, I think, revealing for some of the trustees and employers to see you know what they had in those schemes um, and how they are perhaps not offering value for members um, it'll be interesting to see because obviously we're going through the second year now and we're, we're seeing some of our schemes for the second time be interesting to see what actions have been taken and i think as you mentioned there donna the, the regulator mentioning that they're, they're going to be checking with trustees that they are doing these things and are act taking the actions uh, required will, will, will be interesting and yet you know un undoubtedly even just that the revelations to the trustees of what they did have uh, in some cases uh, has, has been interesting and revealing for them that will undoubtedly lead to to more consolidation of those types of schemes yeah I just, it seems surprising to me that all the schemes went through the chair statement stuff and then they were still perhaps surprised about what they saw when they looked under the hood in a bit more detail or at least maybe it's the benchmarking bit is the big bit you know you, do, you know you might think you're doing a good job you might think you're doing the best thing for these people you'll save as your former employees or whatever but when you actually compare is that was that the big difference do you think david was that yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. Um, I think, you know, not being aware of what the market would offer now mm. um, was was a key key aspect of that. Um, you know, and, you know, costs isn't, isn't everything, is it? But, you know, when you look at that cut that costs and what um, trustees and employers were paying um, for, for investment um, uh, returns and those sort of things was, yeah, uh, yeah, a, a revelation. And the markets moved a lot as well because the master trust market has developed so much. You know, it, it is fine tuned. It is, you know, able to take on these schemes very well. You know, one of the other things with um, some of the defined contribution schemes, 
single employer trust is you know they're attached to DB and they may be um, they may have a linkage in in terms of accessing tax-free cash and that's mm. always been seen as oh well therefore we can't do anything about it but that again has developed and you know, for standard life along with you know um, a number of the other master trust providers will now allow that to be um, sent back in so you know should a DB member take their benefits later and want tax-free cash from the master trust that can be accessed um, so, so yeah, it's, it, it has been a journey and quite a quick journey when you think about it, because, you know, that wasn't widely available on Master Trusts, you know, I don't know, 18 months or so ago. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. So we've, so we've had the consultation, which I alluded to earlier. I'd be interested in both of your views really on that consultation and, you know, high level. let's keep it quite high level. This is, you know, but, but a mere podcast. But um, yeah, what, what were your views on it? Um, Donna, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I think for us, so we like the ambition of the consultation to standardise how VFM is measured across the industry. And if standardisation is done well, then we think it could actually result in better outcomes for members. And then we also support more emphasis being placed on investment performance and quality of service rather than being too focused on costs and charges like you just mentioned there, David. Um, we do believe, unfortunately, proposals as they stand ask for far too many data points to the extent that they will be difficult to have any meaningful analysis and comparison. Another area we'd like to see more emphasis on is the quality of the service metrics, uh, including digital uh, journeys and engagement activities. And then finally, we, we know that the, you know, the, or we believe that the whole financial picture of an individual can affect their retirement outcomes. And therefore we'd like to see financial well-being and guidance or advice journeys captured in the VFM assessments too. So I think generally, you know, we're supportive of what it's trying to achieve. We believe that the, there's parts of the industry that are doing this very well just now. We've obviously got the IGCs and the, the Masters boards doing this already. And we believe that we can we can lean into what the industry is doing already in best practice areas um, to, to, help, to help improve member outcomes across the board. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and one framework is is absolutely key. Um, you know, in, in terms of you know, ultimately this is about member outcomes and them trying to understand how this is done. You know, it, it needs to be done in a consistent manner. You know, as I said, we've been on a journey with value for members, and we know in terms of how we are assessing value provided. Um, you know, our competitors and different advisors are doing it differently. Um, some to you know very high level rather rather than in in depth. Um, and you wonder how much that is. Um, therefore, allowing a true assessment. You know, the, if you go right back to you know the comparators that you have to do now um and you know you can select three good comparators or you can select three bad comparators you know depending on what you want the outcome to be and that, and that is slightly um restricted because most of the master trust providers with authorization etc are, are doing a good job but um it's yeah it's, it's just trying to um restrict that so that you can make sure that you are looking as you said don you know very importantly at member outcomes um Trying to do an assessment without lots of complex data is difficult, but as you say, it's it, you know we need to have some key data. I think that 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 is actually assessed, uh, and the the service and um, proposition side is is very difficult. You know, numbers are easy, aren't they? You know, investment performance is investment performance, charges are charges. That's why everyone focuses on that. Um, but that service side definitely has to be taken taken into account. You know, we've seen legacy schemes um, with um, uh, single employer trusts that sometimes you know they're all bundled in, in in one place with a with a major provider 
lots of those major providers are, are legacy schemes now and they're taking months to get hold of information that's just no good for members who are looking to retire um so you know those those things are you know as important as the charges and costs um i have to say it's it, it's in terms of an output it's one i'm glad i'm not trying to put together myself completely um but yeah it, it, it's got to be good to have that one framework so how they do you have a sense of how they'll capture that sort of woolly side of things that isn't just numbers on a spreadsheet is it going to be you know click through rates or frequency of sending out communications these kind of things do you have a sense for where that's likely to end up I personally think that's difficult as well because does that tell you that somebody is actually engaged or they're taking the right actions so it, to me it should be fully focused on outcomes not just actions taken so how do you know that somebody that has clicked through has read and understood how do you know that somebody I mean it's great things like update beneficiary absolutely brilliant it's great to monitor those but there are still some areas that how do you really measure true engagement and that's a, that is a challenge we all face as an industry how do you really measure that true engagement well yeah and, and, and agree with that really i think i think you yeah. need some form of matrix in terms of the base level of service you know tech does does it provide you know at retirement um uh, guidance you know those those sort of things um but yeah you need to be too need to be careful that you don't say right okay well that's it it's as good as the other one um and engagement is a measuring engagement for employers full stop is is it's, it's difficult you know um it's trying to come up with a metric around that um, but at least the conversation's happening you know that's the mm. important thing i think that's the thing i think a lot of this stuff especially on the vfm we all know what good looks like you know intuitively but even if not ob objectively intuitively you know what good looks like we know what we want members to be able to do um and we'd like to be in a position where members are well informed or the rest of it it is just having that objective okay are you doing it well are you doing it better that that kind of thing and that is the the massive challenge and it's going to take time i think this is sadly probably not the last vfm consultation we're going to be responding to so a vfm is a trustee responsibility um but david how do you see employers being brought up to speed with requirements for their employees uh, schemes yeah and, and that's an interesting point actually because um you know value for members has been very focused on the trustees it's ultimately their responsibility We've tried very hard to make sure that the employer is involved in those conversations because the future of the trust is, you know, an employer choice um, largely. Um, so it's trying to make sure that they are involved in the, in those discussions and it's trying to make sure that the trustees do do bring them into that uh, discussion very early on. Um, I think ultimately the employer is worried about their employees and you know their employees are, are are members of the scheme so um it's trying to make sure that those uh, discussions happen very early on um i have to say we've we've struggled you know in terms of bringing the employers into those discussions in a lot of cases it has been very trustee focused uh, and we would like to see more employer discussions but ultimately because it's a trustee responsibility we would be dealing with trustees uh, in the first instance um but they can't you know they can't manage a, a single employer trust on their own and um, they need the employers backing they need the employers involvement so uh, it's trying to make sure that that um, is is cascaded and that the employer becomes involved uh, early on in the discussions i agree david and i think there's a couple of things there we could you know the regulator could write out to all employers and um, advising them of the new vfm requirements but obviously employers vary in size and their understanding of pensions so that's probably going to be uh, not very straightforward 
And then providers like us, we can help with the communications where we where we have the single employer scheme as well. We can write and communicate to the employers to help there too. And I absolutely agree. You know, one of one of the key parts of the proposal or aspects of the proposal in the consultation is around trustees um, instructing uh, employers if their scheme is not meeting the BFM uh, assessment. But to your point, the employers need to be involved way in advance of that point so that any actions that need to be taken, we've got enough forward planning to make sure that happens. Yeah, and, and you would hope that employers would take an interest, you know, they're paying the bills for, for the schemes. Um, so you'd ho hope that they'd have um, some involvement and be keen to get involved. Yeah. Is it, does this touch on the sort of the challenge that we have with deferred members as well? I don't know, sort of employers probably more worried about current employees, less less worried about people that have left the business. Trustees, by their very nature, will, will be, you know, will look at everybody. They'd be more concerned, you know, everyone. Is that a conflict that needs to be overcome as well? And how would we do that? We tend to find that many employers are actually quite paternalistic and therefore they also want to ensure that deferred members see them as past employees and they want to have as good retirement outcomes are also well looked after. And employers may also appreciate that with the help of advisors in, in many cases, that the increased buying power they can possibly have by keeping deferred and active members together for any, any possible move to a master trust. But the areas of conflict can arise when deferred members represent lower value than active members or a higher cost to serve. And in these cases, employers may only want to move the active members um, to a new arrangement. But as we all know, the trustees may not be able to approve that because ultimately the trustees have to look after all members within the trust. Um, so the trustees will have to consider all members there. Um, one thing that we've been thinking about is this conflict tends to centre around small pots. So if we think about moving forward, uh, a kind of medium to longer term solution could be that either the government or industry solution to small pots could help manage this conflict. But in the meanwhile, um, employers and trustees will need to come to an agreement um, around how to deal with the actors and affairs going forward that, that meets everyone's needs ultimately. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's a very sort of soft conflict, isn't it? Um, and, and, and I don't think it's actually when the master trust is being set up or when the assets are being transferred. I think you're quite right. The employer will have been paternal probably in the first place anyway, so they're quite um, comfortable looking after deferred in the same way as they do members. I, I think the issues come later down the line. So as we've talked about, you know, if you're um, uh, putting your employees into a good master trust and you want to make sure it remains a good master trust, you need a governance group in place as well. You need to keep that, that running correctly. Um, and to be able to analyse that and look at how your employees are doing, because it's the employees that the employer has input into. Um, you know, to be frank, ultimately they 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 have good pension schemes in place for their employees, not not necessarily their ex employees. But even affecting things like you know expression of wishes, as we mentioned earlier, you know making sure that more of those are completed. Sometimes it can be difficult to get the MI from the master trust provider because the master trust provider will tell you what the expression of wishes completion rate is but won't tell you what's members and what's um, deferred, sorry, what's active members and what's deferred. And the employer wants to interact and engage their active members more, um, but can't necessarily identify that. So that's, so it's, so it's a very, it's a conflict with a very small C, I think, um, but trying to do that on an ongoing basis and managing it, particularly over the years, you know, if they've got 
the scheme 20 years later, um, you know, their input into to thirds is, is absolutely minimal. And just on that point about the, the AMI, we think that's really important. So when we designed our client analytics tool um, for employers, an online tool, it's got loads of data. Um, you can filter it down between actives and deferreds. So you can see the difference between the two different populations, as well as things like location, gender, uh, size of pot, etc. Um, so that is really important for us and had feedback from clients that they would like to see that split between the actives and deferreds in their AMI um, to help with their overall scheme objectives. Yeah, and, and, and that's excellent. Um, I have to say you're in the minority of master trusts that, that provide that. Um, not that not I'm giving a full full sales pitch for standard life, but you are. Um, it, Thank it's you. something we're talking to um, all of the providers about um, for, for those obvious reasons. So we started um, the conversation looking at how the landscape has changed for master trust over the last uh, 10 years. Again, we've got you, Donna, so you seem the right person to ask. So what, what do you think is the future for Master Trust, say for the next, I don't know, five or ten years? Yeah, so I expect to see a number of Master Trust providers continue to reduce, I know we touched on this a little earlier, uh, and the focus will be on a smaller number of large Master Trusts that have the financial strength to continue to invest, to adapt to changing member needs as, as well as any regulatory change and provide that long-term partnership for employers. And I can touch a little bit on like, where we are focused for the future, um, bearing in mind we have our strategy with the trustees next month, but uh, we have that on an annual basis to review uh, where, we're taking the, where we're taking the Master's Trust. But key areas for us just now are around, I did mention earlier, the, the retirement solutions, so new innovation in the retirement space, continuing to increase personalisation, so using all that data, the rich data that we've got, not just about um, what we know about the member, but what actions they've actually taken to um, surface relevant content and help them with this decision making. It will be a key focus on guidance and new advice solutions. So we all know about the, the work the FCA are doing just now around the boundary between guidance and advice, accept to change. Uh, and that will be a really important part to help members with that decision making. And I did touch on this earlier as well about helping members think more holistically about their finances. Um, so yes, retirement savings, massively important. But how can we help members today with what's important to them today and help build that confidence and help them plan for the future. So really broadening out our solutions around that wider financial wellbeing space as well. And those are the kind of key areas that we are focusing on for the future. That's brilliant. David, did you want to? Yeah, I, th I, th I think you know, you've know you touched on all the major points there, I think, Donna, uh, in terms of that personalisation. Um, we talked about transitioning and um, being about communication, communication, communication. And I think the future is about data, 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 yeah. um, being able to analyze things um, and make sure that members are making the right choices um, and um, uh, look, at, look at things in more depth around their, their well-being. I also wonder as well, there will obviously be consolidation. We've mentioned several times, you know, we don't expect to be talking about 37 master trusts in a couple of years time. Um, but I also wonder if um, as the single employer market um, single employer trust market de decreases, um, but potentially, you know, the, the master trust might look to widen their their access um, to to other um, sort of smaller schemes and that that sort of thing. Um, and then there's the longer term debate, which we sort of avoided a little bit around, you know, contract based or master trust, um, and you know, which which area is going to grow more. I think you know, master trust is certainly growing more at the moment, and that's largely down to the single employer trust. Uh, moves uh, and and wind ups. Um, so yeah, it's just in terms of how the providers develop, you know, they're very 
very similar at the moment in terms of proposition. So again, if you go back three years, you know, you'd get a different price for a contract-based scheme and a, and a master trust. You don't get that now. Uh, generally across the market, the proposition is very similar. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that develops over the next uh, the, the next few years as well. I totally agree with that point, David, because we're still seeing the majority of uh, clients coming to master trust from that single employer owned trust uh, uh, arena. We are starting to see more movement in the secondary master trust space as we are seeing um, clients starting to look at their master trust providers and reviewing their providers just now to see if a move is is the right thing or not. Uh, and, and the last point there about the contract based schemes, we are starting to see a small number of clients and prospect clients looking to move from contract to master trust. It's still at the, the small end of the scale. Um, and it is interesting because the propositions, the member experience, the employer experience is so similar. Um, but some of the reasons that we do get is the increased powers of the trustees. So as an example, we touched on being able to change the investment for all members without member consent. If the trustees believe that's the right thing to do, some employers like that. So it will be very interesting to see how the landscape moves as we move forward. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I think that's um, uh, the end of our conversation. So thank you, Donna, for joining us today. It's been really useful getting your insights from the Standard Life Master Trust. Thank you. It's been good. Thank you very yeah, much. Thank you. And nice to have you as well, David, I suppose, I should say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so join us again for the next episode of the broadcast soon. And we thank you for listening. Thanks. Thank you.